This is an American Crimecast production. Visit us at our new home at accproductions.org. Remember, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. You are listening to Medina Circumstances, hosted by my dad. Ladies and gentlemen, James Dean. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Gig. We asked Jimmy over today because he's a racing man himself. A real one, not a crazy one. Incidentally, I think I should explain that Jimmy just stepped over from the set of Giant. And need I add, he plays a Texan. Speaking of racing, have you ever been in a drag race? Are you kidding me? I just thought I'd ask. No, Jim races in the tradition, you might say. Real racing cars, real tracks. How fast will your car go? Oh, an honest miles an hour. Clocked it to run about 106, 7. You've won a few races, haven't you? Oh, one or two. Where? Well, I showed pretty good at Palm Springs. I ran a Bakersfield. Jimmy, we probably have a great many young people watching our show tonight, and for their benefit, I'd like your opinion about fast driving on the highway. Do you think it's a good idea? Good point. I uh, I used to fly around quite a bit, you know. I took a lot of unnecessary chances on the highways. And I started racing, and, uh, and now I drive on the highways, I'm uh, extra cautious. Because you know, no one knows what they're doing half the time. You don't know what this guy's going to do with that one. On a track, there are a lot of men who spend a lot of time developing rules and... Ways of safety, and uh, I find myself being very cautious on the highway. I don't have the urge to to speed on the highway. People say racing is dangerous, but I'll take my chances on the track any day than on a highway. Well, gig, I think I'd better take off. Oh, wait a minute, Jimmy. Um, one more question. Do you have any special advice for the young people who drive? Take it easy driving. The life you might say might be mine. Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Justin. And now that both my boys have done introductions, that one that you just heard was my younger son. And now that they are even, uh, I figured it'd be a nice little thing for them to do because they are not allowed to listen to my podcast because of my foul language. That is Dad's Rules. So, I figured that'd be a nice little thing to do. And what you also heard was a public service announcement from James Dean about basically highway safety and driving fast and all that good stuff. He did that public service announcement, ironically, 13 days before he was in the crash that killed him. So, it's a nice little fact for you right there. Uh, This episode is going to be very limitedly edited it's going to be probably pretty dirty because i gotta leave here for another city that i gotta go work in so this has got to be done quick 
What we're going to be talking about today is the Curse of Little Bastard. For those of you who don't know what that is, Little Bastard is the Porsche 550 Spider that James Dean was killed in. Now, George Burris, a famous car customizer from that time period, uh, he owned the car legitimately longer than anybody else on this planet. He bought it as scrap. Uh, and he pretty much logged all the incidents that occurred. It is said that this car is cursed. And we are going to center around the legend of this car. And then I am going to shoot you guys with some facts. This was originally supposed to be a Patreon episode. Not even going to lie to you. Um, what happened was I figured my patrons would be more happy with a good old-fashioned unsolved murder, so I'm going to put this one out instead, and I'm going to try to keep everything clean so that, uh, this will be an all-ages episode. So our story begins on September 19th, 1955, where at the age of 24, James Dean bought the Porsche 550 Spider. This car was number 55 of 90 ever made, and he bought the car for $7,000, which today would be $63,300. It had a top speed of about 124 miles per hour. Now, this car was designed for more for an amateur driver, which is what James Dean was. He was not a professional by any means. Uh, this was not his first choice in car. He originally had ordered a Lotus Mark 9. Uh, the car was really, really delayed, and he was trying to have a have a good race car before these uh, races that were happening in Salinas, California, on October 1st and 2nd of 1955. And his uh, Lotus Mark 9 was not going to be ready by that point in time, so he had worked it out with the dealer. Uh, he had a friend who had some connections, and he ended up buying the Porsche instead. Uh, the only the only thing about getting the Porsche was he had to hire uh, the field engineer and mechanic, Rolf Wutherick, uh, for any future races in which James Dean obliged because he wanted that car really, really bad. So as I stated, he had a race in Salinas, California uh, on October 1st and 2nd. Now he bought the car on September 19th and had some customizations done to it. Uh, the person who did the customizing for it was a guy by the name of George Barris. He was a very famous car customizer. Uh, he customized a lot of famous people's cars, and that also includes the original Batmobile from the television series. Now, since he had limited time to make it to this race, or to get used to the car, he took the first few days and he, like I said, he gets George Barris to customize the car. Uh, just some little odds and ends, it really didn't specify, and if it did, I couldn't really remember. He also gets Dean Jeffries, who is a very famous paint and pinstriper at the time. And what he had done was he had the number 130, which was his Salinas race number, written on both doors, the hood, and the rear. Now also on the rear of the car is where he 
named the car Little Bastard. And where he got that nickname from, he thought it would be pretty funny because that was the nickname that Jack Warner, who was the head of Warner Brothers Studios, had actually given to James Dean. He used to refer to him as the Little Bastard because James Dean would often cause problems around the studios and the sets, and it wasn't big problems. He was always driving fast. He had a Harley. He was always riding around really fast on. They even put in most of his movie contracts that he was not allowed to race. This is one of the reasons that... Uh, James Dean got the car and planned this race in Salinas when he did because he had just gotten done filming the movie The Giant. So on September 23rd, he's out driving the car around a little bit uh, where he there's there's actually two sides of this story. The one, the first one is that Alex Guinness you know, comes to see the car. James Dean calls him. He wants to see the car or whatever, and James Dean shows it to him. And Alec Guinness sees it, says he feels just not right about it, says he feels something evil about it. And he says, and I quote, Promise me you'll never get in this car. If you get in this car, you'll be dead in a week. And this is on September 23rd. The date of the crash was exactly seven days later on September 30th. Now the other side of the story, and this one is the one that I take for fact because it was written in Alec Guinness's diary. For those of you who don't know who Alec Guinness is, he is Sir Alec Guinness and he is the original Obi-Wan Kenobi from our famed Star Wars movies. And this says that specifically on September 23rd, him and James Dean had met for a lunch or dinner or something of that matter, and he shows him the car outside. And Alec Guinness says, and I quote, next Thursday you'll be dead if you get into that car. That was what Alec Guinness had written in his diary, and he proceeded to say that James Dean just kind of laughed at him and you know, thought it was pretty ridiculous. Uh, whether or not that was a fabrication, we do not know. But those are two sides to the same story. Now, the date in question, not really in question, the date that James Dean lost, lost his life was on September 30th, 1955. He was on his way to Salinas, California to compete in the races that were on October 1st and 2nd there. Uh, with him was uh, Rolf Wutherick, which was the field engineer and Porsche mechanic that he had to employ because he got that car so fast. There were a lot of people that wanted that car, but James Dean had the right connections. How it goes is that James Dean was originally supposed to trailer the car. He was uh, a guy named Bill Hickman, who was a stuntman, and another guy who was a photographer named Sanford Roth were with them, and they were in a, it's like a big-ass station wagon, I can't remember it, but they were pulling a trailer behind them, and that's what they were going to haul the little bastard in, and they all four were going to ride there. Well, Rolf uh, suggested that he drive the car to get a lot more familiar with it, which was probably 
a good idea when you were thinking about it, but at the end of the day, obviously, it was not a very good idea. With Rolf in the passenger seat, James Dean, they take off down the road. They are followed, like I said, by Bill Hickman, who's a stuntman. Uh, he had the he had the trailer attached to the big station wagon there, and then uh, Sanford Roth, who was a photographer. And at about 5.45 p.m., James Dean is driving west on Route 46 at an estimated speed of 70 to 75 miles an hour. And you have a young guy, uh, age 23, by the name of Donald Turnipseed, who was going east on Route 46 at an estimated speed of 55 to 60 miles an hour and he was driving a 1950 ford coupe now the weight difference between these cars is pretty dramatic the ford coupe weighed about 3100 pounds the porsche spider weighed about 1400 pounds so there's a huge weight difference there's also you know you have the sun setting there's all kinds of factors in this wreck well, what happens is, while Donald Turnipseed is driving east on Route 46, there comes like a fork in the road, and it just kind of wise off to the left onto Route 41. Now, the sun was setting, and the car was silver, so Donald Turnipseed really couldn't see uh, the little bastard too well. And James Dean is just hauling ass, and his last words were... And I quote, he's got to stop. He'll see us. And the two cars collide. Uh, it was a pretty massive impact. If you've ever seen pictures of the crash, it is unbelievable. Wilderick, they, they collided almost head on. The impact was um, to the front left uh, the front driver's side tire almost directly because Dean his racing instincts kicked in and he tried to maneuver around and it didn't work because of the sharp turn that uh, turnip seed was making. So the, they had an impact. Weatherick got thrown from the car and he suffered uh, from a broken hip and multiple fractures on his jaw. Turnip seed suffered a broken nose and face lacerations. And James Dean suffered a broken neck, head trauma, and internal bleeding. Now the problem with this, there more than likely would have been a chance for James Dean to live, but the closest hospital was 30 minutes away. So as George... You know, George Barris says a story in his book that, you know, James Dean died in his arms. That's total bullshit. He was not even there. And I'm sorry, but I said it was going to be an all-ages show, but apparently it's not going to be. By the time the uh, ambulance got there, there really wasn't too much that they could do for James Dean. He was pronounced dead by the time that he got to the hospital. Now, obviously, this was a huge, huge, huge event. James Dean was 24 years old. He was the king of cool. He was the definition of rebellion. He was awesome. He was an amazing, talented actor. He was all of the above. You know what I'm saying? 
But here is where our story starts. The aftermath of this starts when George Barris, and this is George Barris's story of the car. We will get into some facts afterward. George Barris says that he buys the wreckage of the car off of the Dean family. He pays $2,500 for it because, believe it or not, there were some salvageable parts and there were a lot of collectors and racers alike that wanted anything they could get off of this car. Now, $2,500 in 1955 was the equivalent of about $22,600 today. And George Barris pretty much did this because he thought he could turn a quick profit by selling, you know, some of the usable parts and all that good stuff. While the car is being transported from the crash site to wherever George Barris was located at, the story begins with the car as it was getting unloaded at George Barris's place. It fell off the truck and crushed the mechanic's legs who was unloading the car. Now, obviously, you know, that really didn't strike anybody as odd. Um, sometime later, and I'm going to say sometime quite a bit because there is no exact timeline from 1955 until about the early 60s. It's all spaced out, but we do not have exact dates, which is something that really, really bothers me. After it crushes the mechanic's legs, two thieves try to steal some parts off the car. One thief tries to steal the steering wheel, and in doing so, he... Uh, tears open his arm from what I could find. The other thief who was trying to remove the seat was also injured. To what extent, we do not know because it does not specify. Now, George Barris does find a couple people to buy some parts. A couple of the salvageable parts were the transaxle, in which a doctor from California who was also a racing fanatic uh, by the name of Troy McHenry buys the transaxle and puts it in his race car. Another doctor by the name of William Eshrick buys the motor to put in his Lotus Mark 8. And he sells two tires to a buyer in New York. Uh, we do not know the name. I tried finding out. I could not find specifics on that. Now what happens about a year later... In early October, there is a race in Pomona, California. Now, Troy McHenry, who has the transaxle from The Little Bastard, during this race, him and William Eshrick are in the same race together. Uh, Troy McHenry, who had the transaxle, during this race, spins off the road, hits a tree, and dies instantly. William Eshrick, who got the motor to put in his Lotus Mark 8, uh, wrecks into another vehicle and is severely injured but does not die. Now the story of the two tires, which is totally unconfirmed, goes that 
these two tires that were both from Little Bastard blew simultaneously while the driver was going down the road and he almost died as well but was only severely injured. Now after these incidents uh, George Barris says that he feels a little bit weird about the car so what he does is he decides to put it in a warehouse in Fresno, California. Now what happens at the warehouse is that supposedly it mysteriously catches fire and every single thing in this warehouse is burned except for the car. The little bastard remained untouched. There was absolutely nothing wrong with it and at this point in time it still does look like it did the day of the crash minus uh, the salvageable parts. So... George Barris pretty much just doesn't know what to do. Well, at this point in time, the California uh, State Police get a hold of Barris, and this is still 1956, and James Dean is still fresh in everybody's mind. So what the cops decide to do is take this car on an exhibition, and what they're going to do is promote, you know, dry, you know, safe driving and no speeding and all this other good stuff. Well, supposedly what happens is on one of the exhibitions, which was in a high school in Sacramento, California, this car falls off the display and breaks a student's hip. Now, after a couple more little you know tidbits they say that you know one of the pieces one of the pieces somebody found you know they picked up the piece of the car it was just a little piece of you know the the metal the fabrication of it and this person had this in their possession and they lost everything uh it's really unconfirmed to be perfectly honest with you but after some of these incidents the cops pretty much decide that they do not want the car anymore. So they decide to return it to Barris. While the car is being transported back to George Barris, the driver of this transport truck gets into a wreck. Now what happens in this wreck is the driver of the transport vehicle gets thrown from the vehicle after the wreck and supposedly what happens is the little bastard then folds and falls off the trailer falling on top of the driver and killing him. Now after this they get another transport vehicle. The other transport vehicle Supposedly, the little bastard falls off the trailer, breaks it almost clean in half, and almost kills a couple of, you know, passing drivers or whatever. That is totally unconfirmed. I only read that in one place. But they did say that when the vehicle still was being delivered back to Barris, that the truck driver who was unloading it again... The car slips off and breaks his leg again. So by this time, it is the late 1950s. They pretty much don't know what to do with the car. George Barris, you know, decides to take it. He gets he gets offered by other um, 
you know, highway police officers, state police, and all that good shit to take the cop car out on tour again. Now, he agrees to it because they were going to, you know, pretty much, you know, pay him some money. And that's that's what he was looking for with this car. Let's be real here. So, the story goes that after the car got done from an exhibition in Florida. Now, I've heard two different stories on on this one of which is that it was loaded into a train and the other one is that it was loaded into a truck now what happens is the by the time the train or the truck whichever it might have been reached was on its way back from florida to george barris the car was not there it had literally vanished and Nobody had known what had happened to it. And the one thing that is true about this, on whether it was a train or whether it was a truck, this is a proven statement. That car has never been seen since. There has been one 6 by 6 piece found that is in a museum right now that is the only piece of this car that has ever been recovered since the early 1960s i believe it was 1961 but it's hard telling because like i said there is no definitive timeline on any of this so it's really really hard to tell i mean it's really hard to decipher And it should be noted that little 6x6 piece didn't even appear until the year 2006. It was brought to sale at an auction and it was authenticated by paint analysis. Uh, Historic Auto Attractions ended up buying it and put it on display and there have been no problems with any of this ever since. So some of you might be wondering, you know, what happens next? Well, what happens is Barris claims that the car was lost in the 1960s while being transported uh, by either train or truck from Florida to California. Well, he also contradicts himself in 2011 when he says the car was lost in New York. But that's, you know, besides the fact, we'll get into that here in a minute. Now, what George Barris did do is he hired a private investigator by the name of J.J. Arms to find the car after it disappeared. Now, he did investigate this for quite some time, and he concluded that the car could only have been stolen in Florida because there's no evidence of it even being loaded onto any train or truck of any kind. But, after an extensive search of Florida... The car still never turned up. So sometime, uh, I'm not exactly sure when, what happens is Volvo Auto Museum goes on to offer $1 million to whoever can come forward with the car. Now this is while Barris uh, was still alive because Barris would have been the one to authenticate it. Uh, that he was literally the only person who knew this car inside and out. 
he often did that by paint. That's how he verified the little six by piece, six by six piece that was found by the paint. Now, this is where shit gets kind of interesting, okay? Um, he goes on to say that Wutherick, who the passenger of the car was, and James Dean's mechanic uh, and field engineer, um, eventually went on and suffered from the curse as well. He says that Wutherick, who became a pretty bad alcoholic after the wreck, he... It is stated that he had a lot of survivor's guilt. He was very depressed. He had several surgeries to try to repair his hip. He said that he went on to apparently stab his wife 14 times with a kitchen knife and then tried to kill himself. Now, the actual fact about that is, is Wutherick, who did have a very severe drinking problem because of the injuries he sustained and because some of the depression and guilt that he felt from this, he did, he died in a drunk driving accident in 1981. Now, Turnip Seed also died in 1981, uh, the sad irony of it. Uh, neither of them would ever talk about the crash outside of the official deposition, which they, you know, the everybody looked at it and the color of the Porsche combined with the sunset turnip seed really wasn't in the wrong. He could not see the car coming at him, especially at the speed that James Dean was going. So, you know, there's a little a little fact about you know, George Barris saying what he said about uh, Wutherick, which obviously was not true. And he said this in his 1974 book uh, called Cars of the Stars. And he pretty much lays out the entire story of the Porsche Spider in this book. Uh, before then, none of these stories had ever really originated. Now, back to the Volvo Auto Museum, offering $1 million to whoever comes forward with the car. Now, don't get me wrong, $1 million is not shit, because anybody who has this car or would have this car, a $1 million is chump change. This car would be worth tens of millions of dollars. Besides the fact there were only 90 made, this is the car that James Dean was killed in, all right? So, on September 30th in 2015, a 60-year-old man comes forward and says he knows where it was stored. He says when he was a kid back in the 1960s, he saw his father and a group of guys store it behind a false wall in Whatcom County, Washington. Now, he will not reveal the location until he receives half of the money that Volvo is offering. It's really interesting though because this guy passed a polygraph and he named details of the car that only someone who has seen it would be able to know. Which is a very, very interesting fact, okay? Now Volvo is not willing to pay half of the money and I'll tell you why here in a second. One of the weird reasons is because this guy would have been six years old at the time. Now, for a six-year-old to the age of 60, this is one hell of a memory. 
besides the fact that he does have information on the car that only, you know, if you saw it, you would only know it. Now, the reason Volvo is not willing to pay half of this money is because pretty much the man has no claim on the building that the car is supposedly stored in behind this false wall. And he also has no claim on the little bastard itself. Now, neither George Barris or the estate, you know, has has no claim on the car either um, because there's no documentation to prove ownership. Now, Two months after this guy came forward in 2015, George Barris died. So there is pretty much nobody to come forward and authenticate this car. And this is pretty much where the story stops. Since then, there has been one other report. Uh, This was just very, very recently, I believe last year again that the little bastard had been found and it looks exactly the same way it did as the wreck now there is no evidence or confirmation of that uh, you know as of right now so there is the story of the little bastard all rolled in a nutshell Uh, the you know very infamous little bastard I should say Now let's get into some facts here. We'll go ahead and start with some of the earlier stuff that that supposedly happened. Um, Let's see. Wilderick, like I said, did not stab his wife 14 times with a kitchen knife. He did not then try to kill himself. Yes, he had a lot of problems afterward. He had survivor's guilt. He suffered from depression, and he was in a lot of physical pain from having so many surgeries to try to fix his hip afterward. He did become quite the alcoholic, and eventually, like I had stated, in 1981, he died in a drunk driving accident. Now, Turnip Seed, like I had also mentioned, did also die in 1981. Now, the driver. The initial driver of the truck that supposedly got his legs crushed or broken or whatever during the initial transport from the crash site back to George Barris's place. He was a guy by the name of George Barkowis. Now, George Barkowis, um, he never had any legs crushed. There was no documentation of this. There were no doctor visits. He was alive and well. He walked just fine. So we can go ahead and throw that one out the window. Uh, Another one would be the car falling off a display in Sacramento, California. The car was not actually the car when it was on that first set of uh, exhibitions for, you know, road safety or whatever. What George Barris did was... He replicated the wrecked car with just a plain-ass car with sheet metal. He beat it up to make it look like the little bastard, and that was what was traveling around going to high schools in California. Now, besides that fact of it not actually being the real little bastard, 
there was never any reports of any high schooler in Sacramento, California ever having any kind of car fall off a display and breaking his hip or his leg or anything else of that matter. So we can go ahead and throw that one out the window for the most part because if it was related to James Dean's car, you can almost imagine that it would be in, you know, at least one newspaper, if not several. Another thing, the warehouse fire in Fresno with the little bastard uh, being the only thing that was untouched in this entire fire. I could not find anything related to any kind of warehouse fire in Fresno, California, which, you know, really, (laughs) I looked pretty damn hard. Now, a lot of these stories, like I had said, um... They stemmed from George... Now, like I said, a lot of these stories stemmed from George Barris himself in his 1974 book, Cars of the Stars. Now, I don't know if he was trying to sensationalize himself or trying to sensationalize the car, or the legend of the car, or even his friendship with James Dean for that matter. But do you remember me bringing up a guy named Gene, or Dean Jeffries? He was a painter and pinstriper who was very famous, and he was the one who did the, the painting and the pinstriping on James Dean's uh, spider. He has documentation stating that he did all the work to the car himself. Now, he also goes on to state that not only were James Dean and George Barris not really friends or even associated with each other, but he also goes on to say that George Barris never even saw the car up close while James Dean was alive. So that is a very interesting little fact right there now like i said the car itself is vanished nobody has been able to find this the only surviving piece of this car is literally a six by six piece of metal that is held in a museum and there have been no problems at this museum whatsoever Um, it would, I would really, really love to see the guy who, you know, came forward, you know, 60 years to the day, you know, after the crash of 1955, you know, came forward in 2015. I would love to see Volvo just fucking pay this guy a half a million dollars because I want to see if this is the real thing or not, whether it is. I don't know. But there is one little interesting side fact. So don't be hitting the pause button or the stop button just yet. Because there is also another curse that is associated with James Dean. And this one might hold a little bit more validity to it. James Dean played Malcolm in a stage production of Macbeth. Now for a long time... There has been an ongoing thing that there is a curse going on with the play Macbeth. Now, this one is actually very well 
it's very it's a lot more documented than the little bastard play itself and this i mean there's a lot of shit that has happened and where this stems from is they say that when william shakespeare wrote the play he used actual incantations from spells that are used in witchcraft in some of the scenes of the play Now, I only traced it back to about 1849, uh, some of the events surrounding the play Macbeth, uh, one of which being, uh, let's see, an 1849 performance in New York actually whipped up the audience into such a frenzy that a riot broke out and more than 30 people were killed. Um, the 20th century performances, it says, were especially brutal. When Laurence Olivier played the title role in 1937, the one of the heavy weights above the stage mysteriously came untied and crashed down uh, within a couple inches of him. This, and besides that, this production shows actual swords in the fighting scenes, and the tip of one of these swords broke off and flew into the audience, uh, hitting a man and causing him to have a heart attack. Now, in 1942, a production uh, holds the record for pretty much the most misfortune. Three actors died during its run, and the costume designer killed himself right after the premiere. Uh, 1953, Charlton Heston, who was playing the lead role, suffered severe burns on his legs, and it was discovered that his tights had mysteriously been soaked in kerosene. I don't know how somebody gets their tights mysteriously soaked in kerosene, but apparently it fucking happened. Now, this is only a few examples of this Macbeth curse. Maybe I'll do an episode on it later. Maybe I won't. I don't know. To be honest with you, from all the shit that I read going on, it would be really fucking interesting to look into. But this is for a separate episode, for a separate time. There's your story of the little bastard. And there are your reasons that it was probably more than likely made up by George Barris, whether to sensationalize himself or the legend of the car or to sell books. We do not know. But, I hope you enjoyed it, and I will catch you fine folks on the flip side.